seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, He saw a man who was blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When He had said these things, He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And He said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, 
Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of, the, of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Once again, seeking God's help, let's turn back to verse 7 of the chapter that we just read, where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to the man who was born blind, and He says, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And we're told that the blind man went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus commands him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He went and washed and he came back seeing. Now this morning we considered the waters of Shiloh. And we said that the waters of Shiloh were a fountain or a pool that was fed with water through these various aqueducts and channels of water that came from a spring or a nearby well. And that this fountain or pool was located at the southern tip of Jerusalem in the portion of the city that was occupied by David and his administration. And it was near the king's garden. And we saw this morning that it was referred to in the days of Isaiah as the waters of Shiloh, but in the New Testament, it's referred to as the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam. And you can see the connection there just in looking at the words Shiloh and Siloam. 
Shiloh, and Siloam. This is the same body of water in the city of Jerusalem. And we saw this morning that this body of water is a token or emblem of the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem that the northern kingdom of Israel had rejected and refused. And we saw the foolishness of their refusal of God's kingdom and ultimately of God's Son who was yet to come. We saw that this morning. And we saw that uh, the kingdom of Israel to the north, in one sense it was understandable that they would reject the southern kingdom of Judah because of the harsh and unreasonable behavior of King Rehoboam in 1 Kings chapter 12. We saw that providentially this separation of north and south came about. It was understandable as a reaction to those sinful actions. But it was sinful in itself for them to reject God's house, God's covenant with David, and ultimately God's Messiah who would be sent as Emmanuel. And it was an act of unbelief and it led to great judgment. The Israelites rejected the gentle waters of Shiloh and they received a great outpouring of torrential judgment from the great river that was the king of Babylon. And they were drowned in that river, whereas the city of Jerusalem was saved and preserved in the days of Hezekiah. Now moving into the New Testament, we see that there's something similar in terms of the theme that surrounds this reference to this body of water, the pool of Siloam. Because in John chapter 9, we find someone who had, in a sense, every understandable reason to reject God's covenant. Still would have been sinful and unbelieving for him to do so, but in a way, he had every possible hindrance to believing in God's promises and to adhering to God's covenant people. He had every reason, in a sense, from a worldly perspective to reject the church, to reject the Word of God, to reject all of these things because of the way in which he was treated by the covenant people of God. And yet, where the Israelites of old failed and refused the waters of Shiloh, we find that this man goes to that same water of Shiloh, the pool of Siloam. He washes in it, and he puts his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is evidence of a supernatural work of God. That this man was able to, by the grace of God, who gave him the gift of a true and persevering, saving faith, He was able to overcome all of the hurdles, all of the hindrances that turned so many people away from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the Christian faith. And so as we come to this pool of Siloam, these waters of Shiloh, we come seeking encouragement, seeking motives, seeking to understand how it is that we can overcome these things that tempt us away from Christ and tempt us to uh, reject the church, to reject religious leadership. To, you know, so many people in our day have been burned and mistreated in the church or in Christian families, and they reject it all. But here we find an example of one who was despised and rejected and yet believed and was saved. So there's something here for all of us to consider. And we're going to consider this chapter in three major headings. Now, let me say at the outset, 
that there's so much that could be said about this chapter. We're not going to be focusing on every detail. We're not going to be expounding all of the different verses and um, aspects of the text because we, we, I mean, this could be a sermon series for months. Uh, we're going to focus specifically on three things in this text with respect to this man born blind and how he, overcome, he overcame these hindrances and put his faith in Christ. So first we're going to consider the object of faith, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we'll consider hindrances to faith, the things that would have ordinarily become a stumbling block, certainly for most people, in putting their trust in Christ. And thirdly, we're going to consider his eyes of faith, this man who was born blind, but who was given physical and spiritual sight by the miraculous power of God. So first, the object of faith. The object of faith, of course we know, is God in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the object of saving faith. And our children in their catechism class are learning about saving faith and they're memorizing the catechism and they know full well that saving faith is exercised in Jesus Christ. Saving faith is something that we exercise toward Jesus. We believe Him. We believe in Him. We believe God through Him. Jesus is the object. He's the one we're believing when we exercise saving faith. And John chapter 9 presents Jesus here in a particular way. He is the sent one. He is the sent one. And of course, we've already seen that Shiloh and Siloam when they're translated, these words mean sent. And they're a reference to the sent one, Emmanuel, Shiloh who was to come, who would fulfill God's covenant with David and be the root and the offspring of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord who would come to His temple, so on and so forth. The sent one. And Jesus identifies Himself in that way in verses 3 and 4. Uh, when the disciples ask if it was this man's sin or his parents' sin uh, that accounted for his blindness, Jesus says, neither one. Uh, but the reason he was born blind was that the works of God should be revealed in him. Then he goes on to say, verse 4, it must, uh, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus understands Himself to be the sent one. The Father sent Him into the world. He is the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity. God the Father sent Him to fulfill the work of redemption, to destroy the works of the devil and to establish His own work of salvation. And that involved many works of teaching, preaching, healing, all of these things obeying the law of God perfectly, suffering and dying on the cross for sinners, rising again victoriously. And so, uh, he says that he's been sent by the Father to do these things. And this pool of Siloam is the pool of the sent one. It represents Christ Himself. Now, to whom was Christ sent? Uh, who is to believe in the sent one? And to whom was the sent one sent? Well, he was sent to the guilty. And you can see in connection with the miraculous healing of this man who was born blind that the Lord Jesus Christ 
spits in the dirt, he makes clay, he puts it on the man's eyes. Like I said, there's no time to get into all of these fascinating things. But he does that, and then he commands him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man washes in the pool of Siloam and comes back seeing. You see this idea of washing and cleansing. The sent one was sent to the guilty, to the defiled, to the dirty, to those who need to be cleansed of our sinful human nature as those who are uh, descended from Adam who was made from the dust, dust and ashes in this uh, clay body that we have, fallen now into sin, and he needs to be cleansed of his Adamic sinful nature and of his guilt. And so he's been sent to sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the worst. And we see this in Galatians 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul is expounding the fact that the Lord Jesus was sent by His Father. And we're told, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as Sons. So here we are, born under the law, condemned by the law. Jesus Christ takes the curse of the law upon Himself on our behalf, and through His shed blood we are washed, we are cleansed. Why? Because the Father sent Him to accomplish our salvation. We see this language in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. So here we find Jesus Christ clearly presented, set forth to us in the Gospel as one who is sent to take away our sins. God so loved the world that He gave, that He sent His only begotten Son into the world that everyone who believes should not perish but have everlasting life. We are all Filthy, sinful. We're stained like a white dress shirt that's stained crimson, scarlet, blood. Um, you know, your, your um, pickled beets and it gets all over the shirt. Jesus cleanses us white as snow, white as wool. He's sent to those who are filthy. He's sent to those who are unpresentable, to those who are dirty. You know yourself that if you've been out working all day in you know, doing yard work or um, you know, whatever it is that you're doing outside. I think of myself when I'm out hunting and uh, it's in the winter months and yet sometimes it gets a little muggy and it's raining and you're soaked and you're sweaty from head to toe and you, you've been walking around in the mud and then you get a deer and you gut the deer and you're covered in all of these beautiful things and you just can't wait to get a shower and get some soap and some shampoo and just get clean 
Jesus Christ was sent not to people who smell great, look great. He was sent to dirty, filthy, defiled sinners who need a washing, who need a cleansing by way of this pool, this fountain of cleansing opened up by the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, He's sent to the miserable. He's sent to the miserable. And this is made clear to us in one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible, which I preached on not too long ago. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, where the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. As we heard in Psalm 89. I mean, it's all about Christ here. Isaiah 61, again, all about Christ. It's amazing how much of the Old Testament is centered on one who was not even born yet in terms of his humanity. It's all about Christ. This is Him speaking. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So you see, the Lord Jesus Christ came to those who are miserable, not to those who have it all together. He came to those who are broken-hearted. Not self-confident. Not feeling great. He came to those who mourn in Zion. There are those who mourn in Zion. To be a Christian is not to be someone who's always on the mountaintop, on cloud nine, positive, happy. Yes, we should be cheerful and joy is a fruit of the Spirit. But true Christians who are in Zion mourn. They're broken hearted. Uh, Jesus came to encourage. He came for those who are outside of Zion. He came to save unconverted people who are so sick with their sin and so overwhelmed at their bondage to sin that their heart is literally broken. And they are captives. And they are bound by the strong man, even Satan himself. And... They mourn over their sin. It seems hopeless. They're bound. There's, there's nothing they can do to extricate or liberate themselves, set themselves free from bondage to guilt and the power and influence of sin. They are utterly hopeless and filled with mourning and covered in ashes. And yet, the Lord Jesus has come for them. He's come for those who are Lying in the gutter. He's come for you. And He's come for every person who uh, you would think that there's no hope for them. Every kind of person. You know, we can look at a, a room full of people and say, well, 
this person looks to be an upstanding, respectable religious person, and well, then there's that person over there. Jesus came for those that are the lowliest, the, the most foolish, the, the most dysfunctional, the most discouraged and overwhelmed with guilt and with the, the uh, utterly disabling power of sin. Jesus came for them. He came to save the miserable and to give them comfort, to give them consolation, to give them an anointing of the Holy Spirit of joy and gladness, a garment of praise to cause them to grow and produce fruit and be trees of righteousness, bringing forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness that He may be glorified. Uh, Nothing that we've done, the planting of the Lord. He plants the seed, He fertilizes it, He prunes it, he, He waters it. He produces this peaceable fruit of righteousness in and through us as weak and foolish and miserable as we are. And He takes away that mourning and and the ashes and He gives us beauty and cheerfulness. And uh, He does that continually, as I said. There are those in Zion who are mourning, even tonight, who are discouraged. He comes tonight and replaces that with encouragement through His Gospel. That's why He was sent into the world. He was also sent to those in darkness. He was sent to those who are in darkness. We're told in uh, chapter 9 of John's Gospel, verse 4, He says, I must work the works of Him who sent Me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's saying, I'm the light in the darkness. You can go to Isaiah chapter 9 and you see this. That those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. They've been covered in gloom and in hopelessness. But those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The Lord Jesus Christ is that light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not prevailed or uh, comprehended it or snuffed it out. But it is the victorious light that pushes back the darkness of this world and the darkness of sin and of unbelief and of error. And the Lord Jesus in John 6, verse 38, says, For I have come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If you look up in your concordance, this word sent is all throughout John's Gospel. It's not just by accident or some kind of random anomaly that he's referred to as the sent one here in relation to the pool of Siloam. Uh, This is one of John's favorite ways to communicate. One of the favorite phrases that Jesus spoke that he loves to include here. The will of Him who sent me. Notice what is the will of Him who sent the Lord? What is the Father's will? This is the will of the Father who sent me. John 6.39 That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So what is He saying? From all eternity, God has chosen to save some sinners. He has given these specific sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ by name, a specific 
immutable, unchangeable number of God's elect that He has ordained from before the foundation of the world. He's given them to Christ from all eternity. Jesus Christ came into the world with instructions not to lose them. To save every single one of God's elect people. And He will raise them up as we see elsewhere in the chapter. Uh, verse uh, 40. He will raise them up at the last day. And so Jesus is the one who is sent to the elect. But notice also that He is equally sent. If you want to look at it like two sides of the same coin. We just looked at the sent one being sent to save the elect in terms of God's eternal plan of redemption. But look at the very next verse. The Lord Jesus shows us the other side of the coin. And this is the will of Him who sent Me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So who does He save? Who did He come to save? Who was He sent to save? He was sent to save God's elect. But in the very same breath, Jesus says, who was He sent to save? He says, I was sent to save Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him that they may have everlasting life and I will raise Him up at the last day. So from the other side of the coin, from the perspective of life in this world, it's equally true, alongside the reality of predestination, it's equally true that everyone who looks to Christ in faith and believes in Him shall be saved. He uses the word everyone. Okay? He uses the word everyone. So yes, it's God's elect, but as the Gospel is preached, Jesus says, I'm here to save everyone who's in this building right now. Every single person who sees Me and believes in Me. Now, at the end of the day, that's going to be the elect only. But, but that's not... Jesus doesn't limit Himself to that language. He says everyone. He came to save everyone who sees him and believes in him and that gives you warrant to believe the gospel you don't have to know that you're included in verse 39 that you're elect from before the foundation of the world before you have warrant to believe the gospel you can find yourself in verse 40 do you look at Jesus Christ as fully able to save you from your sins, as your only hope of salvation, as a Savior who is willing to save all who believe in Him? Do you look to Him as the only Savior from sin, the very kinds of sins you need to be saved from, and do you put your trust in Him and believe His claims and surrender yourself to Him as your only hope of salvation? Do you believe Him? And do you see Him in that way? He came to save everyone who does that. Now you say, well, the only people that are able to do that are those who are born again. Otherwise, you can't see the kingdom of God. You see, that's not the point. It's not for you to sit around and navel-gaze and figure out, am I being born again at this moment? No. Do you see Jesus as the only Savior, as all-sufficient to save you, do you believe that if you trust Him, He will save you? And do you put your trust in Him at this moment? Then Jesus says, just as surely as I've come to save God's elect, I have come to save you. And I will raise you up at the last day. So you have warrant to believe. But notice this emphasis on seeing Him. 
He came to those in darkness who can't see Him. And He shines the light of His Word. And by the power of His Holy Spirit, He gives eyes to see. John 12, verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And he who sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in Me should not abide in darkness. So you're to hear God's Word, believe it, and when you believe the picture, if you will, the depiction of Christ in the Bible, when you believe that with the eyes of faith, that is the work of the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to see and believe in Christ. To look to Him and to be saved. He was sent to those in darkness to shine the light. So that's the object of faith. The sent One. The Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, hindrances to faith. Hindrances to faith. And there are many hindrances to faith that are recorded in John chapter 9 with respect to this man who was born blind. We think of our sermon this morning and the many hindrances and stumbling blocks that Rehoboam put on the children of Israel because of his unreasonable behavior and his abuse of leadership. And that created a stumbling block that led to the demise, corporately speaking, of the northern kingdom of Israel. They refused the waters of Shiloh and they reaped the flood of judgment. But here we find this man born blind, he also has many hindrances to faith. First, he's afflicted by God. He's afflicted by God. And Jesus makes that clear. Some people try to say, well, uh, when people get sick or they have uh, disabilities or things go wrong in their life, that's the devil. And, and God would not sovereignly ordain these circumstances in our lives. But I mean, who are we kidding? All of these things are a result of the sin of our first parents. All of these things that we, we look at in the world and we see evil in the world, we see discomfort, we see things that are painful, even death itself. These things are the result of sin on a grand scale. It's not to say every inconvenience or difficulty in your life is the result of a specific sin, but it is to say that these things are in the world as a punishment upon mankind for our sin in our first parents. Uh, God is sovereign over those punishments, generally speaking. He's sovereign over these things. He's sovereign over everything that happens, whether good or bad, in this world. And He was in control when this, uh, th- this man born blind was knit together in his mother's womb. It was in God's own providence that this man was born blind. And Jesus actually makes that clear that... Um, God was sovereign over this. Not that this man or his parents sinned and God was judging this baby in the womb because of their sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So God ordained this evil, if you will. Not moral evil, but circumstantial evil. He ordained this disability, this discomfort in this man's life so that God Himself could reveal His glory and His power. And that's how we should view in general the evils in this world. We serve a God 
who overcomes evil with good. Who takes things that, even things that men and women intentionally do for evil purposes, and God works it for good. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So, God afflicted this man with blindness so that God himself could glorify himself. Now, if you're still struggling with that, Exodus 4, verse 11 uh, is. I think decisive on this point. When the Lord's speaking to Moses, he says this Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? So the Lord's saying, I'm sovereign over uh, sickness, illness, disability. God's sovereign over blindness. And And it's in God's providence that this man was born blind. Now, that's difficult to deal with in many cases. And some of us even, you know, we love God. We we believe in God's sovereignty. We believe in the goodness of God. But God brings things into our lives that are unpleasant. And we might be tempted. We might even struggle with the fact that God, our sovereign God, has brought this affliction into our lives. God has afflicted us in this way. And and we ask, how could God allow this to happen? Or even more poignantly, we ask, how could God ordain these things to happen in my life? And that is a major stumbling block for many people who refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They latch on to this and they say, listen, XYZ has happened in my life. And uh, God is sovereign, or they might say, you're telling me, as a Christian, you're telling me that God is sovereign, and I can't accept a God who would do that. I just can't accept it. Uh, But you see, this man, it doesn't hinder him. This man doesn't struggle with that. This man is able to overcome that. Why? Now, we don't have a lot of information about that in terms of this man's own personal experience, but you can see in the culture, in the climate of the church in that day in the synagogue, that people did believe that God was sovereign over this. Many people actually believed that perhaps this man or his parents had sinned and God had afflicted him for that reason. So he was brought up, no doubt, to recognize that God was sovereign over it. But that didn't keep him from coming to the Lord. Why? Because where sin has abounded, grace abounds all the more. This man came face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to destroy the effects and consequences of sin. Now, of course, he doesn't destroy the effects and consequences of sin immediately. He doesn't do it overnight. He didn't immediately heal all the people in Jerusalem or in Galilee or in the ancient world. There, there are still cases of blindness and sickness. But, but Jesus performed these miracles to demonstrate that through His saving work, there will come a day when all of these things are gone. They're a thing of the past. There's no more sickness, no more sadness, no more disability, no more blindness. Jesus performed this miracle, yes, to point to the reality of spiritual sight by faith, but also to demonstrate His sovereignty over the effects of sin. And and, and the fact of the matter is, whatever situation in your life causes you to be tempted to doubt God's goodness and to hold back from looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
The fact is you can look at this miracle and you can see the sovereign power of Christ. That He will come into your life and He will work this for good. Whatever, whatever it is, He will use it to glorify God in your life. That might mean taking that affliction away. Or it might mean with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it might mean that he doesn't take away the thorn in the flesh. Some people think the thorn in the flesh was that Paul had bad eyesight, and that's why he had to write in such distinctively large letters when he wrote his name and some of his epistles. They think that was the thorn in the flesh. I don't know. But either way, um, God didn't take that thorn away. But His grace was sufficient, and He glorified Himself through Paul's perseverance to the point where now Paul is not experiencing that thorn in the flesh any longer. So, this man was afflicted by God. Secondly, he was judged hastily by Christ's disciples. Verse 2 of chapter 9, Jesus' own disciples. So, these are godly believers. And they're the Lord's own personal disciples. And yet they come to the Lord and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, probably they were conforming to the pattern that surrounded them in the synagogues, the Pharisaical kind of judgmentalism that was commonplace in that day. Uh, We're not sure. But they judged this man uncharitably and hastily. And we need to be careful with that. Job's friends famously or infamously looked at Job's situation and immediately concluded that Job himself had either cursed God or brought this upon himself through secret hypocrisy in his life. Uh, We need to be very careful. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Love thinks no evil. So we don't assume the worst about people. We don't make harsh and hasty judgments against them. Um, There are instances when people have been struck blind because of sin. I mean, it's not completely unthinkable. The men of Sodom certainly were up to no good when God struck them with blindness. The Apostle Paul miraculously struck Elymas the sorcerer with blindness. But in this case, there's no reason for them to jump to that conclusion. And so here's a man who already is blind, but people are talking about him behind his back and they say you know folks that uh, their eyesight is uh, is not so good or they are totally blind they can hear a lot of things I'm sure this man heard a lot of things I'm sure his hearing was very sensitive to hear people talking like this and 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 here we have even the disciples of Jesus Christ speaking about him in that way what a painful experience I mean if you're this blind man, you're already afflicted by God with blindness, and now Jesus' own disciples, if somehow he were to hear of this, or, or even people in the church in general making these kind of comments, you can imagine how that would just cause many people to head for the hills. I don't want anything to do with the disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't want anything to do with the church or the synagogue or uh, religion in general. Uh, because these people are out to get me. Here I'm already blind, and now they're blaming me or my parents for it. Ridiculous. Many people leave the church because they're treated in that kind of way. In addition, uh, he was thrown under the bus by his parents. Uh, John seems to really amplify that. He makes it clear that when the Pharisees are trying to investigate this man and 
And uh, rather than rejoicing that he's been healed, a blind man from birth has been healed and now he can see, rather than throwing him a party and rejoicing, they're hot on his tail trying to get information so that they can condemn the Lord Jesus Christ. And he explains it to them once and then they keep coming back. They eventually go to his parents and so on and so forth. But they go to his parents and in verse 18, because they didn't, you know, at this point, they don't really believe that the miracle was legitimate. Uh, and so they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. And John is not content to leave it there. He wants to emphasize this point as to why they wash their hands of it. Why they don't say something that in any way defends their son or corroborates what he may have been saying about Jesus having done the miracle. Why they just sort of sit on the fence in total neutrality. They're afraid to say anything. They just say, well, go talk to him and, and, and get off of our case. And, and, and they just basically send them away to, to, to talk to him. John's not content to leave it there. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So they're not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. They're not going to stand by their son when their son is interrogated by the Pharisees. They're not going to show solidarity with him. They just want the Pharisees um, to be investigating somebody else. He's of age. Go talk to him. Throw him under the bus. And they wash their hands of it. We're not told later that they're excommunicated from the synagogue. They remain neutral while their son is cast out of the synagogue. So this man is thrown under the bus by his parents who are afraid. They don't help him. They don't have any kind of solidarity or camaraderie with him. They're not interested in hearing about how he was healed. Uh, They just want to keep their distance. And he's treated harshly by the church. Uh, If you look at verse 24, so the Pharisees called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. These are people that are church officers in the synagogue in the first century. They're supposed to have the keys of the kingdom to open the way of salvation. Uh, These are the people that should be teaching the law of God, which its chief theme is the coming of Christ and the work of salvation. And that's their job as church officers, as shepherds of the flock, and yet they're hirelings, wolves, thieves, robbers. They're actually trying to persuade this man not to believe in Christ. Uh, they're, They're making this sharp distinction. Give God the glory. This man is a sinner. So they're seeking to steer him away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And the man responds, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I do know. Here's what he did for me. He healed me. I was blind and now I see. Shouldn't that count for something? I mean, shouldn't we be focused on that? How is he going to do that? If, If he's not from God, if he's not a prophet, how is he able to do that? If he's not from heaven, I mean, where is he from? If he's 
teaching and preaching in this manner and then uh, confirming it by signs and wonders. Uh, and, and the man loses his patience with these harsh religious leaders. Uh, do you want to become his disciples? I mean, what's the point of this? We've gone over it time and time again. I've told you already, and you did not listen. And they revile him. You're his disciple. We're Moses' disciples. And eventually, after some interaction back and forth, we're told that they revile him. You were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him from the synagogue. Now, it's in this context, of course, that Jesus then presents the material of John chapter 10, where he, he sets himself up as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who unlike the hirelings is concerned for his sheep. He loves his sheep. He dies for his sheep. Uh, he keeps his sheep such that no one can snatch them out of his hand. Uh, he's the good shepherd as opposed to the hireling, uh, the thief, the robber, and so on and so forth. He's the real good shepherd. Now, these are the hindrances to faith. This man has been afflicted by God. He's been judged hastily by Christ's disciples. He's been thrown under the bus by his parents. He's been treated harshly by the leadership of the church. We all know people that have experienced maybe even a fraction of what this guy dealt with, and they've left the church. And they're, as far as they're concerned, they're never coming back. So what do we make of this? Well, our third point, we consider the eyes of faith. This man, having been healed of his physical blindness, was healed of his spiritual blindness as well. He was victorious over these hindrances. He was able to see around these stumbling blocks in his life. And there are really three things that he was able to see. First, he was able to see the goodness of the Good Shepherd. He was able to look at Jesus, not even um, thinking here in terms of physical sight, but to consider with, with, in the sense in his mind's eye. He was able to conceptualize and consider the goodness of the good shepherd. Jesus came to him in his miserable condition and Jesus helped him. Everybody else is critiquing him. Everybody else is trying to blame him and burden him with guilt and treat him like trash, and Jesus comes and helps him. And Jesus solves his problem. And Jesus takes away his reproach. And Jesus shows compassion and has the power to make a difference in this man's life. And he notices that. He sees all these other people and they don't give a rip about him. But he, he knows this man, Jesus. Maybe he couldn't pick him out of a lineup at this point, of course. Um, but he knows whoever that was cared about me, he healed me, he helped me, and he understood, in his, just in the most basic sense, the goodness of the good shepherd in contrast to the hirelings, the wolves, the thieves, and the robbers. He was able to see that. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. When we deal with hindrances to faith, when we're turned off by uh, perhaps the providence of God and we think, well, God's against me. We need to understand, 
If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Look at what Jesus has done for sinners. Look at what Jesus offers you in the gospel. Look at the concern and compassion of Jesus. He says, if you've seen me, that's what the Father is like. So you can overcome that hindrance. And maybe you've been judged hastily by Christ's disciples or treated harshly by church leaders or thrown under the bus by your parents. But you see, by looking to the goodness of the Good Shepherd, you can see that Jesus is not like that. Jesus is good. He's generous. He's compassionate. He, he, he knows His sheep by name. He establishes a personal relationship with His sheep. He takes care of them. He provides for them. He protects them from harm. He, he doesn't let anyone mess with them. He, he sees, this blind man sees the goodness of the good shepherd. And my friends, Jesus, if, if you read through Psalm 23, this is Jesus. This is who He is. This is His faithfulness. His goodness and mercy follows you every single day. He's with you in the good times, in the bad times. He is your good shepherd. His staff guides you. His rod smites you with chastening, but it's always in measure, in love, to lead you in that path of righteousness, lead you to heaven for all eternity in the house of the Lord forever. That's Jesus who laid down His life for everyone who sees and believes in Him. Laid down His life. Uh, nothing of self-interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our shepherd. He's our king. And yet he who was rich became poor for our sakes. The perfect example of self-sacrifice that we could ever even conceive of. And uh, John uh, chapter 10. I mean, there, there, anyway, there's just so much there. We'll, we'll just leave that first subpoint and go to the second one. That this man with eyes of faith is able to distinguish the wolves and hirelings from the shepherd. He's able to distinguish the wolves, the hirelings, the thieves and robbers from the shepherd. This is so important. When you reject Christianity, when you refuse the waters of Shiloh, when you refuse to wash in the pool of Siloam, when you walk away from Christ because of the circumstances in God's providence, or because people in the church judged you harshly and were unkind and unfair to you. When you walk away from Christianity because your parents threw you under the bus or because church leaders treated you unfairly and harshly. You are not actually walking away from uh, Christ's disciples or from your parents or from church leaders fundamentally. When you walk away, you're walking away from Jesus Christ. That's who you're walking away from. And this man understood that these wicked people in the church that had treated him unfairly were not the church. That they were not the Christian faith. That they, they ultimately, he was able to distinguish people in the church and people who may claim to believe the truth who are ungodly from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and who is perfect, and who has never sinned against anyone. There's no unrighteousness in Him. He's never given anyone a raw deal. Uh, he, he was able to believe in Christ despite the unfaithfulness of virtually everyone around Him in the covenant community. And my friends, that's true saving faith. Those are the eyes of faith. Because when we don't have true faith, we're blinded to that. 
We look at the church and we can see it with eyes of flesh and we see all the problems and we see all the hypocrisy and we see all the shenanigans that this man would have seen or heard and we just say, well, I'm done with it. But when you have the eyes of faith, you're able to look past all of that just like there's a, a camera lens where, or, or a portrait that might be taken where it focuses in on the person in the portrait and everything else is blurry in the background. Eyes of faith are able to look at the church and at the covenant community and see Christ and everything else is blurry in the background. And so you're able to look at the covenant community and look at the Bible and look at Christianity and you don't really focus on all the people that are unkind and hypocritical and harsh and, and all of these things, you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, well, I'm not going to throw out Christianity. I'm not going to throw out the church because then I'd have to throw out the Lord Jesus Christ who's, who's the Savior from sin who gives me all that I need. I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm not going to leave the sheepfold because then I'd have to leave the shepherd. And I'm willing to put up with all of these People in the sheepfold, all of the sheep around me, the goats even, I'm willing to put up with them because I want to stay near the shepherd. This man was cast out of the visible church of that day. But Jesus came to him and he didn't reject Jesus. And my friend, you need to receive Jesus Christ. You can reject the shenanigans that are happening all around you, but don't reject Jesus. This man says, Lord, I believe. Final point on the, in terms of the eyes of faith. He's able to focus his gaze on what Christ has done for him, not what others have done to him. Now, if we had time, we'd look at all the examples here. I have uh, a half dozen verses in this chapter where he constantly refers back to this man healed me. This man gave me my sight. Uh, he does it verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 25, verse 30, verse 38. Again and again, almost every time this man is speaking, he's talking about what Jesus has done for him. And you don't hear him hardly say anything about what all these other people are doing to him or against him. He doesn't have a victim complex because he knows that if you put your trust in Christ, that you're not a victim. I mean, you're, yes, there are victimization in the world, but God works it for good. And there's coming a day when all of that ash will be re replaced with beauty. There's coming a day gradually in the Christian life, but at the consummation, there's coming a day when you will be perfected in holiness and joy, and there will be no sin, no sorrowing. It will be fullness of joy for all eternity. And all of these afflictions will be a thing of the past, not even to be remembered. If you're a Christian, Jesus has done that for you. And if you believe in Him today, He'll do that for you. He'll take all of it away. Not, not in a moment, but He does take it away day by day. And He's taking it away for every one of His people, working all these things together for good and for the glory of God. This man in heaven right now does not regret the fact that he was born blind. This man is in heaven right now beholding the face of Jesus Christ. He doesn't regret the affliction. 
He doesn't regret all of the negative experiences that he had, the hasty and harsh judgments thrown under the bus by his parents, treated harshly by the church. He doesn't regret that because that helped solidify for him the contrast between Jesus Christ and everybody else. And so, my friend, the way to overcome your trials and your troubles and your frustrations is to, is to flee from all of these failed promises of other people, all of these injustices and afflictions. Flee from these things to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not let you down. Focus on what He has done. Focus on His death on the cross. Focus on the work of His Holy Spirit in the life of, of every believer in Jesus Christ. Focus on what He's done. And as a, as a Christian, uh, this battle against doubt and anxiety and discouragement is not over. You need to be thinking about what He's done for you. Stop thinking about what other people are doing to you. Stop thinking about it. If there's actions that need to be taken for protection and safety, by all means. But, but, but move on and focus on Jesus. And you will be victorious over these things, just like this man who went and washed in the pool of Siloam. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for the gift of faith. It is a precious gift. It is a supernatural miracle. And it is only from You. And so we pray that You would open our eyes, that we may look to Christ, that we may receive these promises, that we may put our faith and trust in Him who is ever faithful, the One who saves us to the uttermost, that we might have peace with You and peace in our consciences, and peace with our circumstances, peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, we ask in His name. Amen.